Welcome back to another episode of the Kramer Bros podcast. This this one seems a little bittersweet, man. This is our uh, fifth out of fifth breakdown of The Last Dance as they released episodes nine and ten a couple of days ago. And I think this was really keeping a lot of people sane, maybe including myself, just giving me the dose of sports and basketball that I need. And I'm not sure where we go from here, but let's let's break down these last two episodes. What did you think? I also am going to miss the episodes. I'm excited to talk about these last two. Uh, continues to further my belief on just how special Michael Jordan was. Um, so let's talk about episode nine first. Okay. So episode nine begins with someone who I think will get pushed kind of further down the ladder, maybe forgotten more and more as the years pass, but was one of the original like sweet shooters. I think he was one of the first people to weaponize the three point line and that's Reggie Miller. Um, I did not know that those Pacers teams were that were that good. And I'd never heard MJ talk about how tough it was. Obviously they went to a game seven, but um, to play against those, I'd never heard, heard him mention that. What did you think about that stuff? They were really, really, they were kind of, uh, um, you think of the Knicks, what made the Knicks really good. They had a ton of size, very, very physical. And so they had that. They didn't have a big as the caliber of Patrick Ewing, but Reggie Miller was uh, way better than John Starks was, right? And then they had uh, Jalen Rose, who was coming into his own, who was a really nice player. And then they had one of the top passers in NBA history and Mark Jackson. So they could throw a lot of size at you. Uh, They could throw a lot of shooting at you. Chris Mullen was a sweet shooter as well. Um, And so that was a really balanced team. You know, when you watched them play, Reggie Miller was obviously their leading scorer, but they had a lot of players who could give you double figures, guys who could give you double figures off of the bench. Um, so when you combine that type of offensive balance with how good they were defensively, they're going to be a really, really formidable team, even though they didn't have um, the super, superstar type player that other teams may have had. Occasionally you get teams like that that are really good. You know, we had it with uh, 2004 Pistons, right? No stud, stud, stupid, superstar, but uh, enough of a collective unit, they could be one of the best teams in the league. And that's uh, a version of how I view the Indiana Pacers. Reggie Miller is really interesting because he didn't make a whole lot of like all NBA teams or anything like that. Um, so it almost seemed like, like his personality, but also the fact that he showed up in big games made his legend maybe like a little bit bigger than it would have been if you just look at his statistics and like his, his all NBA nods or all-star nods. Um, But I love just how we all think about these players who have just this level of confidence that no matter what court they're stepping on, they see themselves as the equal to the person they're playing against. And it doesn't make sense to think that way when you're going against Michael Jordan. Right. But if you don't think that way, then you're even worse off, I think. And for him to step on a court with Michael Jordan and be like, all right, I'm going to retire this dude. Um, and just to, to go to war with someone like that. And I just thought it was really interesting because there's a really fine line with that. 
So there's sometimes, depending on the player, if it's a Reggie Miller where they have that, that, th- that thinking and that thought process and it helps them. And then there's times where you look at someone like a Dion waiters and they have that thinking and it just completely like hurts the team hurts the individual. They're, they're forcing bad shots and it's someone that no one wants to play with. And so I just, I was laughing because you, you think of Reggie where that worked out for him. Like he would go into Madison square garden and tear the hearts of the Knicks out. He would play well against MJ. And then you had these other guys that like try to do that same thing and it just backfires a little bit. It helps when you're the best in the world at something. And uh, Reggie Miller at that time was the best in the world at coming off screens and hitting threes. And um, so if you can do that, combine that with the level of confidence that he had, combine those two things. And he was one of the best clutch shooters throughout the 90s. You know, that's a, that's a player that's Reggie Miller. And the thing that I found interesting throughout, you know, the Reggie Miller and the, the Gary Payton interview and everybody taught, you know, the Knicks, uh, if this would have happened, we would have had them. We were, you know, this jump ball away and we would have won. It's like, no, man. Everybody says that. None of you win, right? Even if Michael Jordan would have lost once, all those other arguments would make more sense. But because he never lost once he reached the apex, the pinnacle, you're just like, you know, if you didn't lose one way, you were just going to lose the other. And that's how it felt when you watched Michael Jordan and the Bulls play was, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know how the Bulls are going to do it, but I got a feeling they're going to win. And they always did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You you got the, I think what you're probably speaking to is when it was it Reggie who said if they would have won that jump ball, the game probably would have turned out differently, but there was like six minutes left in the fourth. And in some ways, like, you know, as a player, you can feel the ebbs and the flows of the game in a way that not even the people that are watching it can feel it. So you can feel different types of momentum than what even a person that's like watching it live can feel. And I think that's probably what he thought was happening, but you're right. Like there's no evidence to say that if you win that jump ball, that for some reason you're going to beat the Chicago bulls in the last six minutes of the fourth quarter. Like there's just, it doesn't add up. And so in some ways I understand where he's coming from. And like your mindset doesn't change just because you stopped playing basketball. Like if you held, if he held himself in high esteem and had that insane level of confidence, of course he's going to look back on history a little bit differently than, than probably most people. And so I, I do understand that, but yeah, there's no evidence to say that, Oh, that jump ball, we would have had the bulls in the last six minutes. It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I don't know if you were aware of this during the time, but that 97 series against the jazz and Carl Malone was fresh off his MVP season. And I think he had pined for himself to get MVP, right? Had he done like a little, I thought he did like a little publicity tour in terms of touting himself as the MVP. And I think, I think that MJ didn't take too kindly to that was the theme. Yeah. I, it was kind of, you know, Jordan had won it in 96 And I remember throughout the 97 season, it was basically fatigue. People didn't want to give it to Jordan again. He'd won a bunch already. I think at that point he already had four because he has five total, correct? I think so. And and so it was just kind of this fatigue and people were looking around and saying, well, who's another one of the best players in the league? I'm one of the best teams in the league that hasn't won an MVP before. 
and it kind of became this Carl Malone snowball effect. And the interesting thing looking back on it is I wonder if that's some of what helped get that team over the hump into the finals was that they started to finally get more recognition and they started to um, get this attention that they never really got before because they're in Utah and, you know, it's a small, small market team. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting to look back and say, you know, was all this extra attention and, and pressure almost on the team to perform at a high level, what pushed them over the edge. And I thought we were going to see Michael Jordan against uh, the Houston Rockets. That's what I thought was going to happen. John Stockton hit a clutch, a three-point shot to uh, send them to the NBA Finals. And I thought we were going to see Elijah Wan and Drexler and Charles Barkley going up against uh, the Jordan Bulls. That would have been a fun series to watch too. Oh, wow. I hadn't pieced together yet that those three dudes would have all been on that team. So I knew that Barkley joined the Rockets like shortly, like he just missed out on their championship window. And what's unfair for Barkley is that even if he'd scored a, gotten a championship when MJ was gone, like it would have still lifted his legacy in such a different way. And it's really unfair. Um, but that would have been, wow, that's one of the great what ifs because those are a lot of dudes that have a lot of bones to pick with with Jordan. I mean, Barkley had already lost to him in the finals. So had Drexler and Olajuwon was maybe thinking like, yeah, I won my two, but MJ was gone. Man, that would have been, yeah, I think I would have preferred that over the, over the, uh, them playing the jazz. I would have preferred it, but, uh, you know, it's, that's the way the cookie crumbles. So, um, it was, it was enjoyable to watch, uh, regardless. There's so many crazy narratives that happened in that final. So you had, you know, Malone with the 97 MVP, whether he deserved it or not. And it was a result of voter fatigue. Um, then Jordan bringing up the Byron Russell trash talk that he had said, like however many years earlier, I thought was really interesting. So it was another example on a list of a thousand times that Jordan has just stored something away and used it, used it later. Um, and then the food poisoning game. How could you not yeah. talk about that? Yeah, so let's let's talk about those two things. One of the things that I really liked that I wish the docuseries had more of was Jordan breaking down how he thought about the game, especially during the last three-peat. His body wasn't the body that b- was before. He went from the best athlete, one of the best athletes in NBA history, to turning it into a baseball body. He, now he's older. He turns it back into a different type of basketball body, a much, much stronger, much more of a floor game, still a great athlete, but not the premier, one of the, you know, just strikes fear in you just for what he could do athletically earlier. And and he broke down a little bit of how he basically owned Russell. And he's like, I know he plays more on the front of his body up, up on his toes. And so if I give him, you know, a little head and shoulder fake, he's going to go flying and then I can do what I have to do. I wish the I wish they would have talked more about that because I love learning about those, those details. And, you know, there were a few glimpses of where Jordan showcased the fact that he was not only the most skilled player and the most tenacious athlete, but he was smarter than everybody else as well. Right. And we just see tiny glimpses where he's talking about Russell. 
we hear we see tiny glimpses where he breaks down how he's going about to steal the ball from Carl Malone in the 98. And then he's going to come down and how he's going to hit the game winning shot and when he's going to go to make sure that he's not going to get double teamed at a certain spot. Um, there's times where Michael Jordan clearly went for uh, two for one, you know, when, when traditionally maybe you wouldn't. And there's so many things where you're like, this dude is, is also smarter than everybody else. I wish they would have got into that a little bit more. This past week, I watched the, um, the food poisoning game, which is called the flu game. And uh, it was unbelievable to go back on YouTube and watch this game. And Jordan clearly is not himself. He's dragging. He's conserving energy. When he walks, he's walking in a way to conserve energy. His shoulders are down. His head is hunched. The way he sits back in the chair. And then he has to pick his spots. And he's looking at this game and saying, a lot of the other guys, Pippen especially, like they're not stepping up. And he's just like, we got to keep this game close. We got to play at a slow pace. Um, and if things start to get away from us like they did in the second quarter of the flu game, he takes over. And, you know, we see that when you watch that game. He has a really poor start to that game. He's dragging, doesn't look good, but the game's starting to slip away. Second quarter comes around. He's like, all right, we're going to lose this game. I have to turn it up. So he turns it up for the second quarter. And then um, he, he kind of falls away again in the third quarter and then in the fourth quarter every shot that he makes was a huge shot and we're talking I want to say 38 points um let's keep in mind this isn't 120 to 115 right most of these games are played in the high 70s to high 80s range right so that's nearly 50 percent of your team's points that he's he's putting up in a slower uh, possession game with much grittier uh, kind of defense than we see now, you need to go back. I mean, people, you go back and watch the flu game. It's, it's pretty tremendous. And there's one scene where, again, Jordan hits so many game-winning shots. Like, he hit the game-winning shot uh, in game one of the 97 finals, again, on Brian Russell. Um, and it's just like, yeah, of course he hit it. You know, in, in, in this game – he hits the three that seals the game, um, and it's off of a missed free throw. So I believe he goes to the line. He makes his first free throw. He misses his second. The ball kind of gets batted around a little bit. He goes in there. He scoops the basketball out. So they've made one. They have the basketball back. They pass it around. They pass it around. And the ball gets thrown into, I want to say, Pippen. Brian Russell decides to double-team Pippen, no idea why. They kick it back out to Jordan. Jordan, not known for being, you know, shooting a lot of threes, but of course he can make it, especially in crunch time. He comes up, a thing of beauty, hits the, hits the three. Um, and then I want to say Utah might come down and score, and then they totally blow the next possession where they needed to foul right away, and they didn't. And I want to say it ends up, and like a Luke Longley dunk, somebody dunks yeah. it on the other end where they, they totally blew the last maybe like six seconds of that game where essentially Jordan ended up hitting 
the game winning shot because uh, Utah comes and scores and then they couldn't uh, foul and prolong the game. A phenomenal game to watch of a person who you can literally see in their eyes that they don't have it. But somehow, some way, they dig deep and find a way to win. And so it was really cool to hear some of the backstory with Tim Grover and how kind of the pizza thing uh, went about. How about you? Dude, we love, we love players that can play through stuff. We, we, we like to think that we would be able to do that, like as normal citizens. Like everybody's thinking, yeah, on the grand stage, I would, I would do it. But then when you watch it playing out in front of you, it's the moments where you're like, oh, maybe I couldn't. And that's when you just gain this like huge appreciation. If you've ever had flu po- or uh, food poisoning, like even just like, yes, as, as have I. And even leaving the bathroom is, it's like hard to even think about, let alone going out and playing a game the next day is just amazing. And those are some of my favorite sports memories, as I think it probably is for a lot of people, is when there's those injuries that happen. Like I think of the Jordan um, flu game. I think of, of course, Kobe when he hits the two free throws with the torn Achilles. I think of Rondo when he popped his elbow out and then played the rest of the game with one arm. And then on the opposite end, you have something like uh, Paul Pierce being wheelchaired in because he may or may not have pooped his pants in, in that final series. Um, there's other, other times like the, the LeBron, uh, cramping against the Spurs. And that one's like really hard for me to work through because I am a, I'm not a LeBron lover, but also cramping is just so hard to predict and so hard to understand that. I don't know. I don't want to like put that on his, on his legacy necessarily. Um, but we love that, man. We love when people can be heroic and play through those things when they're so clearly in pain and discomfort. Yeah. Yep. Um, the episode nine also got into kind of some of the, the human side of Jordan with the relationships. Um, you know, Gus is security detail. I thought that was pretty cool to talk about how he had become a father figure, uh, for Jordan after his dad had passed away. Um, and the relationship that, you know, he had with, uh, Larry Bird was pretty cool. And I, we saw that in another episode with Magic and Larry where he's at the All-Star game. And he's he's like, none of these All-Stars are even close to me. The only guys closest to me are actually the two retired guys, Bird and Magic. So mm-hmm. I'm going like, to talk to those guys instead. Um, so that, that was pretty cool. I'm glad they put some of those pieces in the episode as well. Yeah, the Gus stuff was, I think, much needed because it was getting to the point with this with this documentary where it was leaving a lot of people, myself included, wondering like at what cost did Jordan gain all this success? Like do his kids even like him, his family, his personal relationships. And then to um, inject a little bit of that Gus stuff and the father figure and how Jordan was able to sense that something was off with Gus. And then I had seen too, that Jordan had actually paid all of Gus's medical expenses too. And so those are the things as we, as we see the incredible uh, works that a lot of NBA players do, their charitable givings, their things that they're passionate about. And we wonder, well, why isn't Jordan speaking on this social issue or why isn't he doing that? Um, it was nice to actually get an example of a time when he did do something like that. So, you know, he's not just a pure tyrannical robot and it did give him that bit of a human aspect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yep, I agree. Um, episode 10, episode 10, well, what are your kind of some of the overlying thoughts you had, or is there anything you wanted to add about episode nine? The one last thing I would want to touch on, and he was in all the episodes, but is Steve Kerr and yeah. hearing his story as a unathletic guy that had somehow made it in, made it in the NBA and then heard, I don't think a lot of people were familiar with his personal story. So I, I knew what had happened with his dad. And the reason I think that's kind of important for people to understand is because Steve Kerr and guys like him and Greg Popovich are pretty outspoken on Twitter and in regards to politics and things like that. And so it can be really easy to brush someone like that off. Like you're a famous coach, you're, you're living a life that very few people can. Um, but to gain an understanding and a sense of like where Steve Kerr actually came from, what he's a product of, he's, he's lived within these realities that he speaks on so passionately and he cares very much about um, the well-being of, of people. And so I'm, I was glad that he's not just this head coach spouting off without any knowledge of what's actually happening in the real world. He has an understanding of it. And so I hope that people can appreciate that. Yeah, and for those that didn't catch it, I mean, his dad was a professor internationally killed by terrorists. He comes from um, a very kind of cultured background. And so when he's sharing his thoughts on, you know, the, the president or the government or international relations and all these different things, um, you know, it, it's coming from a place where he does have a lot of firsthand experience in in that area instead of, you know, somebody who just reads some, you know, fake news on Facebook and spells mm -hmm. off about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was it for episode nine. Um, there was a lot of good stuff in episode 10. Do you want to start with what you, what you have from it? Man, so many, so many great things about this episode. Um, say, I mean, there's, there's podcasts upon podcasts of just this subject. Um, I can't believe they didn't try to bring this team back. I mean, is there, let's get into that later. Let's talk about that at the end. Okay. So I'm going to, that's a, that'd be a teaser. Let's talk about that at the end. They're going through the 97, 98 season. It's the last dance. Everybody knows this is the end. Um, and one thing that I had forgotten about as they, we talked a little bit about, those Pacers, very uh, gritty, tough team. They just survived that team. And they beat the Pacers one night. They fly out the next day. And then they got to play <laughs> the day after that. That was their, that was their schedule. While uh, the Utah Jazz on the other side were well-rested waiting for the Bulls. And that's how they kick off the series. You know, I – I, I know they traveled well even back then, but I just can't imagine, you know, having played some basketball where it's like, okay, we played this game, hop on a bus, get ready to play again. And that type of turnaround is really, really tough. And with everything on the line, being an NBA championship is really, really impressive. And amidst all that, you have all this Rodman stuff going on that I'd totally forgotten about. He's fighting Hulk Hogan during the NBA Finals. He's skipping one of the, the 
practices in between games to go out to Vegas. I, I don't know where I was. I'd forgotten about that this was actually the same time as when the finals was going on. I thought they were separate pieces. Yeah, I did too. I mean, we've all seen Rodman's wrestling clips and the time that he spent there. I had no idea that they overlapped like that. And, um, you know, I have kind of changed my, my, I still, I know Dennis suffers from mental illness and has this really traumatic upbringing and stuff. Um, but man, like at what point is that, are we just saying, hey, yeah, it's cool. Cause he's Dennis. Um, I, I don't know how I feel about that. That w- like, it's funny to look back on and be like, this dude was starting in the NBA finals and he was also wrestling Hulk Hogan on between, you know, like, yeah, it's entertaining to look at. Um, but what, how, how much he could have changed the legacy. Like if he wasn't able to play effectively or if he had been a huge distraction, you know, luckily you have guys like Phil and Michael and Scotty that can zero in and block that stuff out and still like win a championship. But what if he had derailed that? He would have affected everybody's legacy like crazy. And it's important to keep in mind, during this phase, he really wasn't playing that great. Like that last mm-hmm. season with the Bulls, which can kind of go into if they came back or not the next year, he wasn't playing some of his best basketball. He was still getting a high number of rebounds, but he wasn't uh, quite as mobile. He wasn't as good of a defender. He as much as a tough matchup as Carl Malone was, that probably suited him a little bit better than if they had to go back and play another version of Sean Kemp, mm-hmm. who was running faster, jumping higher, do, doing had a different type of game. Because Dennis, at that point in his career, uh, w- was more likely to to bump and wrestle you on the block than he was to just run up and down the court all day like the Energizer Bunny, like um, some of those you know, Sonic teams were that he was perfectly able to do just a couple years before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it does, it does kind of get lost. Like his rebounding numbers were always up there. My understanding is that once he saw rebounding as kind of his, his calling card and he wasn't as effective in terms of defensively and being able to, like you said, run around and guard multiple positions, then he really hunted those rebounds. Um, and so maybe some of those stats are inflated a little bit. But he was still starting at that time, right? Yeah, he was still starting. Yeah. He was still getting a ton of rebounds. He was um, – he changed his body. I mean, if you look at Big. his body through the course of the years, you know, he was this super athletic, really fast, um, you know, version of, of an athlete. And then the longer he got with the Bulls, he gets bigger. His shoulders are bigger. His arms are bigger. He's bulked up in the weight room a ton where he can physically battle a lot of the bigger players, which is, is by design, right? Because a lot of times he's playing the five at six foot eight, mm-hmm. but um, it also comes at a, a cost of like, if you're going to have this type of body, like we talked about with, with Jordan playing baseball, you're going to have this type of body. It's going to have certain positives, but it's also going to have uh, certain negatives um, with, with how he went about his business. And I think it definitely affected him, you know, help side defense. Uh, It it didn't help him. It didn't help him in transition offense, transition defense. Um, But his IQ as a post defender was still off the charts. Um, He still knew what his role was offensively. And he was still going to go after like a crazy man, every single rebound 
that there was. So, I mean, I'm not saying he wasn't effective. He, he was effective, just not as much as he was in years past. Right. And, I mean, Malone had, had a pretty good series. He's a tough matchup because he can hit – he could step out and hit the mid-range shot and stuff too. So it's not like he's getting the ball on the block every single time and that's all Rodman has to worry about. He's getting it at the high post a little bit too. I don't know how his shooting was off the dribble. Did he do much of that? Like I know he didn't shoot threes or anything like that. Um, no, it was it was post up, it was ball screen, um, mm-hmm. and then you know he could obviously spot up his mid range if he wasn't falling back away too far, which he could hit that too. But what was money? Um, so he was obviously a a tough matchup, but he wasn't going to break it down off the dribble, um, which which helped a player like Dennis uh, be able to to move and defend him. Um, what else stuck out to you about episode 10? I feel like we need to touch on John Stockton. Um, he's another guy who's just going to continue to get lost. And I know that he played at an era where um, it's not like today, like where the point guard is the premier position. And so how he would do where every night he's going against someone like, you know, a Trey Young, a Damian Lillard, and that might be on the low end, you know, in terms of like a Trey Young in terms of the matchup and then having to go against someone like a Chris Paul or whoever else, like they're every team except maybe the Pistons has a good point guard, like a good point guard. And um, that wasn't the case as much back in the nineties, but what do you, what do you think he would, he would be in today's game? Like I was actually really impressed by a lot of the clips. Um, he, he picked his spot. So he would do some backdoor cuts. He could obviously lead the fast break. I mean, early in the career, in his career with Malone, that's where Malone got a ton of, ton of buckets, right? Was on the fast break with Stockton. Mm-hmm. Um, clutch shooting. I didn't really know that about Stockton. It's kind of a wonky looking jump shot, but he, he hit some big shots those last couple of years. Um, I don't know how tall he is, but he what is did you think? One. Is he six one? I mean, yeah. What do you think he is in today's game? Um, yeah, I mean, Carl Malone and Stockton, you know, are losers in this situation, go to the finals two times, you know, Stockton, the all-time assist man, Malone, the second all-time leading scorer. And we're just kind of, it seems like we're just kind of looking at him like, oh, these, these guys weren't that good. Look at how easy Jordan had it in the finals. No, this is the all-time assist guy. This is the, one of the greatest scorers of all time. And the Bulls are beating him in back-to-back seasons. So I think Stockton is a top five point guard of all time. Um, I think in today's game, he shoots more and he shoots more threes. And that's only going to make him more effective. Uh, He's one of the best passers that the game has ever seen. And now if you open the game up, you think of all the stuff that he was doing back then again, it was pass first, point guards don't shoot. Like point guard, that's like your third option as a point guard is to shoot it. Well, now it's like, well, if the point guard's open, they're just going to bring it up and shoot it. That's option A, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he could shoot. He could shoot off the dribble. He could shoot off the catch. Um, so he would be a, a, a better scorer in today's game. Um, the game was much more physical back then. And I think Stockton would have been – fine defensively certainly a much better defender than a lot of the point guards in today's game yeah they can score but you know defensively I don't think Stockton's going to have any more trouble than a lot of the players who already have a lot of trouble 
playing defense, especially at the point guard uh, position. So um, he'd do well. His stats would look a heck of a lot better now. Um, and I think it's, it's not, you know, you look at Steve Nash. Okay, so those are pretty easy comparisons. Steve Nash came along a little later. He shot it a little bit more. Um, now you look at Stockton. Okay, Stockton generally had more assists and less possessions. So that's telling me he's even more effective passer, um, even though he had a running mate in Carl Malone who made the game easier than any teammate that Nash ever had. Uh, and the game wasn't designed for Stockton to shoot, but if it was, he could shoot and he was a clutch player as well. And Stockton was known for his physicality, his toughness, mm -hmm. and that he, that he could defend. Um, there's not many point guards, even in today's game, that are known for physicality, toughness, and their ability to defend while being the best passer in the game. So he transitioned fine. Um, right now, it's like there's just every team, almost every team, as you mentioned, besides our Pistons, it seems like, has a really good uh, point guard. So it would be harder now to be head and shoulders above everybody else because everybody else is so good, right? I, th I think it would be more of an even playing field with Stockton being um, still above, you know, everybody or most everybody from the point guard spot. Whereas, as you mentioned back then, that wasn't um, as a deep a position as it is now. So, you know, he was clearly, you know, the best point guard in the league at that time. Yeah, I've talked myself more into his game translating as it went through this this documentary. He had a stretch from 86-87, I think, yeah. No, 87-88 to 95-96 where the least amount of assists he averaged a game was 11.2. And he averaged 14.5 in 89-90. 14.5 assists at, at the rate of play that was, you know, quite different. Like imagine him now being able to dish out to open three point shooters at the rate that, that it happens. Like, imagine averaging 14 assists in a, in a game where teams are averaging like 90 or, I mean, does it say what they're averaging as a team? This is just his individual statistics, uh, you know, compared to, let's say they're even averaging a hundred, but now they would average 120. Well, <laughs> think of how many more possessions and chances that, assist that we would have had so um we, we've gone plenty of time on Stockton and, and Malone but bottom line is they when it comes to any great player they'd be good in any era uh, no doubt about it um let, let's go to the finals let's go to the finals we're already there but what are some of the things that led um triggered some of your thoughts with the behind the scenes footage yeah the behind the scenes footage stuff um it just continues to like I would just love to have been on security detail and gotten to the arena four hours early or however early MJ gets there. Maybe it's six hours early. I have no idea. And watching, I think just the look in his eyes kind of shift. And so maybe he gets there and he starts, you know, kind of joking around a little bit. And then as it gets closer to game time, he's sitting in his chair and he's just staring at the wall. And I saw a lot of clips like that where he's, he's like just kind of staring He's probably playing through game situations, remembering times where people have slighted him. And only his most trusted people are able to kind of talk to him, it seemed like. And so you have, you know, Ahmad Rashad, who had been saying a couple of things throughout, maybe a couple of his security guards. 
and he's kind of mumbling to himself. He'll say something. And so I just thought that that was really interesting to see how, how he would prepare himself for a game. And we didn't get like a ton of glimpses at that, but just how different it kind of seems. And maybe now it's a little bit, maybe we're generalizing, but that was always kind of the approach that I took was just more spending more time in my head. And now we see the handshakes, we see the conversations, we see the, the cell t- spending the cell phones and all <laughs> that stuff. And um, I just, I prefer the approach that he took. It clearly worked. And I can't remember one of the trainers was comparing him, I don't know, to a shark or to a lion, a lion sleeping in the shade, um, you know, preparing for the kill or something like that. And that's kind of how I looked at it was all these different times. There was the back room and the equipment room that he spends a lot of time just sitting in talking with his security guards. There's times where he's laying on one of the equipment room tables. There's times where he's in his locker, right? And he's just kind of, you know, he's got his baseball bat. Cigar was one of the scenes. But, it, it, but during all those times, it goes to show how important vis- visualization is for sports performance and how he mastered that. He absolutely mastered that where you can see all these different times throughout the series where he's sitting and he's basically meditating, getting his mind right, getting that kind of inner, call it inner peace, inner uh, drive. Everything's getting organized during that time of quiet and being able to organize his own thoughts so that he can go out and play. And I think that's one takeaway that we can all try to to do in our life is to have some more quiet time where we're just in our own thoughts, you know, figuring things out and to put everything else aside, put away the cell phone, put away um, some interactions with other people for a time, turn off any media and just breathe it in, think and soak in what's going on around you. And like I've said before, him and Kobe were some of the best I've ever seen at being able to be in the moment. And I think it's easier to be in the moment when we've processed what these different moments are going to be like, instead of always jumping around from one thought to the next thought to the next thought. And Jordan may have been the best athlete we've ever seen at being present and staying within his thoughts. And those moments of meditation in the locker room were one of the reasons he was able to perform at a high level. Yeah, the physical stuff had been had been taken care of. He'd been he'd practiced, he'd trained, he'd done all these things leading up to that moment. And so then the four hours leading to the game is probably more about that organization of of your thoughts and seeing, maybe even visualizing and seeing what you want to see happen. And um I just, yeah, I love that. And then the guy that was saying, this is like the lion waiting in the shade. And he's like, and if you're lucky, you might get to see a kill later, or I think we might see a kill later. And I thought that was so awesome because even the people that were in it day to day, and sometimes when you're experiencing something day in and day out, you can actually like lose sight of it happening. Maybe you take it for granted or, or whatever it might be. And so to have a trainer say something like that or to get the direct quotes from Steve Kerr as I'm just so glad Kerr was on those teams because now we can hear from him 
in a way, and he puts it in ways that not many people would be able to. Um, it's really, really fascinating. And I think when you talk about giving yourself those quiet moments is like, it doesn't have to be a huge event either. There's times where if I just got off my phone scrolling through whatever, and then I'm going into a, a family dinner, my mind sometimes is like still on whatever I just saw and I'm not able to participate. And so it is, it's important to give your time or give, give yourself some time to be quiet and prepare yourself for whatever event you're about to participate in. And it could be something as big as the NBA finals, but it also could be sitting down with your mother-in-law and, and needing to be present in that moment. And it does take some practice leading up to that. Yes, absolutely. Now, one of the things that I loved and I think it was going into game six was um, he's in the back. He's talking to a Madrashad who's, who is a gem in these series. Like, and I've listened to some other stuff with a Madrashad. He's another person who is one of Jordan's best friends, is one of Jordan's best friends and has a great uh, way of wording the situation, putting the right detail, um, the right environment on it. So I definitely would look up some more stuff of some of his interviews about the last dance, but they're sitting in the back of the locker room and they're talking about how it's nut crunching time. Right. And Ahmad Rashad says, you know, something along the lines of in moments like these, some can and some can't. And Jordan says something back and he's like, he says again, he's like, some can and some can't. And (laughs) Pardon my language, but Jordan says, don't you talk to Scott Burrell. You'll scare the shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good Jordan impression. <laughs> and, and I looked at uh, my wife and I was like just dying laughing because, you know, like I knew exactly what he was talking about where it's just like you're, you're better off just not telling certain people, hey, mm-hmm. this is kind of a big deal. And, and just let him kind of be. And, uh, you know, that's how Jordan viewed Scott Burrell was, you know, he can't handle this level of, of conversation that were happening. You're just going to really, really scare him. So just stay away from him. That was <laughs> priceless. That was one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. Oh yeah. That was, that was awesome. And having already had their relationship like outlined and what I think is really fascinating and I think only the greats can get to this level is where you're so good at your craft that like when you talk about something like footwork and Jordan trying to figure out what angle am I going to attack this play from so I don't get a double team or or so that I can use Byron's tendencies against him whatever that is where you've become so good at what you do that you not only um, have to just focus on like what you're doing but you actually have the ability to look at what other people are doing or might do. And you've thought it through so many times that you can now not only think about your own footwork, but you can think about what's Byron Russell's footwork when he defends. Like that is a level that very few people get to in whatever your craft is. And so maybe that's even a supervisor at work who is like, not only do I have these supervisory duties and I do those so well that now I can, I can ask and, see how is Janice doing her job and what is the, how do I need to help her? How are we going to attack this issue? It's, it's fascinating, man. Not enough people, not enough athletes reach that level. They depend on things like just their athleticism or just, just their shooting, whatever it might be. 
but to really look deeper than that was impressive to watch him do that. It's another reason why he's the greatest. You know, there, there's a, there's this series that I break down in our basketball program of how players can become great scorers, right? So I break down five ways that they can become uh, a better scorer. But what I boil it down to as far as becoming an elite scorer is if they master these five areas, now they have the ability to control the game. And that's the place where Jordan reached greater than anybody else was he was able to control the game, not just offensively. Like we saw it in the last sequence with the steal on Carl Malone. He knew that play was coming. He imagined what he was going to do. He didn't do it earlier. He waited to do it when he needed to get the steal. He could have got that steal when they ran the play before because he knew that was the play, of course. Right. But then if something else happens, you're not able to pull it out at the right time. So he waits. Okay. Now it's the last possession that the, the Jazz are going to have. Then he, boom, goes in and takes the steal. And as you mentioned, that's what very few people are able to do is get to the point where they're so in control of themselves that they now can go outside of that and have the ability to actually control just like, you know, pieces on a checkers or a chessboard control all the other pieces on the board. And that's the point that Michael Jordan reached. And it was even more entertaining to watch him do that because he was no longer doing it from just a physical advantage. It was so mental and it was so much skill based that that in a way made it even more entertaining. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll, we'll get into this. But it also, when you say that it was less physical and more mental than ever before in his career, that's what's so dang disappointing about them not being able to give it a shot in 99 and 2000. Because Yeah, we're, yeah, we're going to talk about that in a, in a second um, for sure. Um, a couple, couple things we wrap it up. Scenes, the scene. So the piano scene. Mm-hmm. We talked about this a little bit with our brothers and our, our private kind of chat group. What were your thoughts on the piano scene? Well, let me jump in real quick prior to that, because Please then do. we can, Please we do. can go yeah, in sorry, order. Jump ahead. Yep. No, no. Um, is I asked you this before you didn't give me your answer, but I knew what it was going to be Oh, sorry. because we had the same answer, which is game five in Chicago for that final series. Jordan saying, we're going to win. I'm going to slide a ring on Tex Winner's finger. And they end up losing. Malone went nuts that game. They lost. And they end up winning game six, and he hits the game winner in Salt Lake City. So this, might, this is a stupid question, asking someone like you, what would you prefer, winning it for your home city and celebrating with your home fans or waiting a couple of extra days, going in and absolutely tearing out the heart of Utah Jazz fans and then stepping at it on their own court? Yeah, it's you the choose. latter. It's the latter. Of course, you want to do it on the road. You want to um, – there's something that's more rewarding doing it on the road, in my opinion. I would, I'd rather have win a big game on the road. Side note, this is uh, something that I, I kind of didn't realize until um, I was getting later through my playing career. But when I was playing – 
my stats on road and um, um, not um, not non-home games, but what what's the word I'm looking for? Neutral site. Neutral, Neutral site. Car, yeah. My my stats and my performance on road games and neutral site games compared to my home games were night and day. Um, I think in college I averaged over 20 a game on road and neutral site games, and I averaged like 14 points a game or less home games my senior year of college. Like not close. Um, the same thing in um, in high school. Some of the best games I ever played, you know, were on the on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, part of it is you got to get your, your juices going maybe a little bit more. Um, especially if you're kind of the, the best player, you know, that some of the role players are probably yeah. going to feel more comfortable at home. Um, but when you're on the road, you, you know, you got to step up and do some more of the heavy lifting. And then the other thing that I think I wish I would have done differently is we talked about that kind of meditation that Jordan it clearly uses throughout um, his playing career was when we were on the, on the road that included travel. And so um, especially pre cell phone, you know, when you're on the road, it's a lot of times it's a long bus trip. Maybe it's a hotel. Um, if you're in high school, maybe it's as simple as a 35 minute bus ride to the next town. But I always use that time to just sit there and think about the game. So everybody has their own process to get ready for a game. But my process for a road game was I'm not talking to anybody. I might put some headphones in, but I'm just, that's it. You know, I just put my head on the the back of the seat in front of me and that's my process. You know, other people might be playing cards or talking or, you know, watching a movie or something. That wasn't how I worked. Um, if I could go back again, I would have tried to see how I could incorporate more of that into our home game. So I would have played better mm. at home as well. But I thought that was kind of interesting. And um, it, it just adds to the story of Michael Jordan that he did all that stuff and it was on the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that you mentioned the differences between at home and on the road. I would do the same thing. I would have rather have beaten them in Utah, especially if you're still mad about Malone getting the MVP and Utah fans are notoriously uh, ignorant and racist. And that's of course, not everybody that goes to those games, but if you're looking at the, the fans as a whole, they're one of the worst fan bases in that aspect in the NBA. And I would have just relished the opportunity to do that. Um, I think for me, like it's definitely I wasn't our best player, but I was one of the best players. And I'm not sure what my statistics looked like at home versus on the road. But I loved being at home too because I was allowed more opportunities to warm up. And I loved being able to. So in the morning before school, before every game, not just home games, I would go in before school started and shoot around by myself. And then I would always warm up with the JV team before home games too. And so I was getting like an extra hour of warming up and was was at the gym before anybody else and um so I think that that allowed me to play well at home but you're exactly exactly right is that role players are more dependent on playing at home and feeding off the home crowd and they're less comfortable you know in those away environments and that's when the the best players have to step up 
So that is an interesting um, thing to bring up there. Do you want to jump to the, to the piano scene or is there more to be said about that? No, I think uh, the piano scene was, was really interesting. There was some stuff online, you know, who are these people that Jordan's with? You know, how come he's not celebrating with his team? And yeah, I just thought it was interesting to see one, like Jordan just won a sixth title. He's having a good time. He's, you know, talking smack to everybody. Um, it just kind of gives you a sneak peek at, you know, who the, who this guy was, um, which, which was cool. Um, but I felt like, media in general maybe jumped jumped it a little bit as far as well we don't know who all these people are you know they're just you know hanger-ons and yes men and I don't know maybe but maybe not and there's a good chance that Jordan celebrated with his team and then he came back to his hotel room and those were his best friends who we don't we're not buddies with Michael Jordan we don't know who his best friends are and they came and they hung out with them. And there were a few media members like the ones doing this docu-series that were in there taking some video and some pictures. Um, so honestly, I didn't think that was fair. Like I didn't think that was fair to um, something that people jumped on on Twitter and stuff when it's episode 10 and they're like going after, you know, that, that one thing. And you, man, you can celebrate however you, you want. Right. I mean, you, you, you won the MVP, you won the scoring title, you won um, the championship and the finals MVP, and you just got kicked off your team. Basically you can, you can celebrate however you feel like it. Um, So I thought that was, that was a unique thing that I didn't see coming from uh, the media, even though I can kind of somewhat understand where they were coming from. Yeah, I think it was the the culmination of all 10 episodes. Um, but for me, I mean, I was kind of one of those people. I was like, what, who are, who are these people? Obviously his one best friend that um, was, had spent some time in the documentary, George, I think his name is, he's, uh, what's his, what was his title in the documentary? Best friend and manager or something like that um, was in, was in some of those, those photos and those video clips. And so, yeah, I think it's missing a lot of the context. I thought the actual scenes were kind of awkward themselves and I'm still trying to work through it. So like it was awkward in the way that MJ was like saying things to the people that were around him. But then I'm, and I'm saying like he was the only one that was talking. So it seemed like a really one-sided celebration. And then I'm like, yeah, but why would they show clips of other people talking at the end of Michael Jordan's documentary? And so I think it is, it could very well be any of the things that we've talked about. Maybe he yeah, was right. celebrating with media members and, and yes men, or maybe it was his closest friends and they just didn't show the other side of it. I don't know. It was missing a lot of context. And the, and the other thing is they just finished episode 10. Yeah. It, it wasn't like this has been sitting around waiting to be, this wasn't even supposed to come out yet. And so um, the way I had heard it was, you know, episode nine and 10 were finished. Like, I don't even know if they were finished like a week before it came out. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be some pieces where you might question a little bit more of like, why was that in? And I, the guys, Jason and the directors, they did a phenomenal job with this docuseries. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, but I'm sure if you ask them and they say, well, yeah, if we would have had the other two months that we thought we were going to have, mm-hmm. we would have done this, this, and this all differently. And it would have been even better, but you know, we had to throw this, 
together faster through a pandemic. And we had to work together to put this docu-series in place without actually working face-to-face with anybody. Like we had to do it through this Zoom call that you and I are doing right now. And that's how they're trying to figure stuff out. So (laughs) given that context around how this came out as well, probably made it uh, even a little more awkward in some of those scenes, especially during the last episode, which they hadn't finished. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is important to look at, you know, all the context. And it's funny because now there's millions of people who are trying to work their way through what they think about Michael Jordan. And it's not even a question of, do I like him? Do I not like him? It's a, what, no, what do you actually like think about him now as a human and as a teammate? Because we've gotten little glimpses of, of all of that. And we're having to now decide for ourselves what we genuinely think of this, of this person. And so I thought that that was, uh, that that was really interesting. How do we, how do we wrap this up? Do we just end with our like overarching thoughts about the whole docu-series? You know, we can talk again about this stuff, but, but the way that I want to wrap this up is does this team, what happened to this team? Should they have brought it back? Why didn't they bring it back? Even after hearing some of the explanations at the end from Phil Jackson, Jordan, um, it stuff still doesn't seem to add up all the way. Um, and so I've heard both sides of it. I've heard, um, you know, th- this coming back the next season because the lockout wouldn't have been an advantage for them because it's a shorter season, right? So they don't need, they just go and play. I've heard uh, it would have been harder because there's more games in a shorter amount of time that's going to wear on an older athlete. Um, the, the eight seed Knicks, I want to point this out. The eight seed Knicks are the team that made the finals out of the East. Okay. So to me, I don't need any more proof that you're telling me Jordan's team couldn't have got through to the finals at the very least this year. They're not going to try to get the best record in the league. They're just going to work their way through. They're going to make the playoffs, right? This is their fourth. They're trying to go for their fourth title in a row. So they're going to go in. They might be a three seed, I don't know, in the East. They're going to work their way through. They're going to get to the finals. And then they're going to play David Robinson, Tim Duncan, a very good uh, basketball team. They're going to have trouble beating those guys? Yeah, of course. Of course, because that's a a great team. Tim Duncan's one of the greatest players of all time. Um, When you throw in the experience level that Jordan has, the lack of experience that anybody on that 99 Spurs team has I'm still going with the Bulls yeah I've I've talked about how difficult that particular matchup would have been in the finals with a young Tim Duncan who's running and jumping you know in a way that not many people remember him doing and David Robinson who won a championship with the Spurs like five years later still right so um that would have been a really difficult matchup but if you're going to ask me, do I think that a lockout shortened season and a condensed schedule is going to all of a sudden benefit everybody and hurt Michael Jordan? I don't really subscribe to that. So he would have gotten how many months in a row off where he can smoke cigars, work out, golf, do whatever he wants to do to get his mind right. He's probably would be very refreshed after that. And then he can tap into whatever he has that no one else does to get through a 50 game grind. I 
I, I would really, I would take him going into that season. Um, and yeah, I think the Knicks making the finals is, is just another argument for that. An Allen Houston, a Latrell Sprewell led team. I, I would have taken them. The one thing that I thought as we, as we try to figure out like, how was this even possible that they didn't bring this team back? I'm actually more disappointed in Phil Jackson at the end of the series than, than I thought I would be. I've read Phil Jackson's books where he's spent time throwing Kobe Bryant under the bus, um, detailing just how he's this, and everybody has said this, he's this wizard and this leader of men that's able to get people to sacrifice for the greater good, right? And I don't think you can argue that. He did that with Pippen Jordan and Shaq and Kobe. Um, but to me, you have someone who has constantly asked his players to put his ego, their egos to the side and that he wasn't able to do that for a run at 99-2000, to me, that's a little bit of a double standard. And I was kind of disappointed in that, that they had said, Phil, you can come back. We want you back. And um, obviously, that wasn't Krause's idea. But to me, it's like, so your, your calling card is to get people to work together for the greater good, and then you, you kind of selfishly say, like, no, I'm not going to do it. We already knew Michael wasn't going to come back if Phil wasn't going to come back. Phil knew that. So I, I'm curious why he, he made that decision. It, it's ego-based. That's great insight. I'm really glad you, you shared that. Um, there's so many moving pieces to this. You know, another thing I'll say is, you know, are they going to have that exact same team and run it back? Probably not, you know. But if they had Jordan, Phil Jackson, and they find a way to bring Scottie Pippen back, and they can just fit around those three guys, I got to believe that, that they're going to be good enough to bring back. You keep the pieces that worked. You bring in some new parts. Like they had great parts, like Luke Longley, not a special player. Steve Kerr, not this elite player, but great pieces, okay? That's, that's all you're looking for is just finding some pieces to put in around players like Scottie Pippen, Jordan, and to fit into the triangle offense under Phil Jackson. And it's another reason why I think they would have, they would have won seven titles instead of um, six. You know, We've already talked in past episodes about those, those other ones. The last thing that I want to touch on, and this is an overarching one, is when – Jordan was speaking at the end. Honestly, like I felt bad for Michael Jordan. I did not, I do not want to be Michael Jordan. I mean, I, I felt sorry for him. Um, you could tell that on one hand, he really wanted that season, right? He came back, he retired for three years and came back to play for the Wizards, which was a whole different incarnation of Jordan. But he just won the scoring title. He just won the league MVP. <laughs> he won the championship and the finals MVP. And then you're done. I mean, it's, it's poetic. Don't get me wrong to finish when you're the best of the best of the best. But at the same time, and Jordan said it throughout, you want to, there, there's something that can be almost um, final. If somebody beats you and somebody says, you're no longer the best. Like it's time for you to move on to something else. And Jordan never had that really. He was the best. And all of a sudden he got pushed out and you felt bad for him as he kind of explained, like 
he still wishes he could have played. And it's still, he still wishes that he could be playing right now. Um, and there's nothing in his life that seems to have filled that void for him. Um, and I think that's one of the things that separates him from, you know, like Kobe Bryant, who seemed to have found peace in other areas of his life. Whereas Jordan was just like, I'm all in on being the greatest basketball player of all time. And I'm hyper competitive in all these other areas. And then when he couldn't be at that apex anymore, it was just like, now what? Yeah, I feel for Jordan, man. Um, yeah, you're, there is something to be said about, I mean, all the great samurais, man, they, they die by falling on their own sword unless their, their enemy's sword gets them. And I think, I think he needed that last season, but then the question would be, was that enough too? you know, I don't, I don't know. He has, he just has this way about him where it just seems like he hasn't found that fulfillment. And we, we talk about because the death of Kobe Bryant is so fresh and because Jordan spoke at his memorial and has said, you know, I, I am going to use the death of Kobe Bryant and the way that he approached life after basketball as motivation for myself. I want to get closer with my family. I want to be a better person. And Kobe had said earlier in the documentary, like, listen, I don't win five championships without Jordan. Well, I also wonder if Kobe doesn't find such fulfillment in life after basketball without Jordan too. They were much closer than what we've ever known. They spent a lot of time talking. Maybe maybe the only person on the planet that Jordan felt like he could really, really, really relate to someone who had been at the peak of the game, someone who had the same mindset and probably a lot of the same struggles. And so when you, when you see life after basketball for Jordan, I wonder how much that lack of fulfillment played into Kobe really having to get his ducks in a row after basketball and say like, no, I'm going to prioritize these creative ventures. I'm going to prioritize my family. I'm going to pour into my daughters. And would that have happened otherwise if he hadn't seen one of his best friends or mentors going through difficulties? I don't know if it would have. I would really love to ask Kobe that question. It's all really intriguing, interesting stuff. And um, I'm so glad they, they did this series. And I hope it can t- like, I hope there's more that comes out. I'm just so interested to learn and hear more uh, about Jordan because of how all this stuff unfolded. He was the best of the best. And then it was over. <laughs> he retired um, multiple times. He had different variations of a prime, like he had the athletic prime, then he had the very skill IQ prime, and then still what separates him is being able to have the ultra competitive desire to win combined with these other things. Like there's great athletes that have pieces of all these different things, but Jordan is the only one that embodied all of these characteristics of a winner. And then you see him, and anytime there was this adversity, he always came through. And that's just what separates him from everybody else. He's in a class of his own as the greatest player of all time. And I don't see a player any time soon, you know, coming close to taking that spot. Yeah, when we're talking about the greatest player of all time, I think it has to become more and more clear 
after this docuseries, unless you're just not looking for it. Like if you just have convinced yourself that he's not and you've stopped looking for reasons to think that he is, you know, that's a little bit of ignorance there, but he embodies all those things that you said. And I think he was, he was one of the first ones to really do it at the right time. So maybe Russell had a lot of those things, but he was early. He was in the sixties. There wasn't a ton of teams or anything like that. And Jordan did it in the late nineties and the media was gaining steam and he became this cultural icon and he has all those pieces and that for me, yeah, is why I think he's the greatest of all time. And it's why when I'm choosing my favorite players, I try to look for ones that embody as many of those pieces as possible too. Um, I don't know what else, what else is to be said. I'm going to miss this, this docuseries. I hope that random clips and stuff continue to, to leak out or be surfaced, maybe some, some unused footage because I, I need it. Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, to our listeners out there, thanks for going on this journey with us through this this five Sunday uh, trip down memory lane of the Jordan Bulls. If you have any topics that you want us to dig into regarding uh, anything that was covered in the docu series that we didn't touch on, uh, please let us know, and maybe we'll talk about it. Yeah, we hope you guys really enjoyed these recap episodes. We were on the edge of our seats during each one of these episodes, and it was really helpful for us to be able to continue to break them down in a little bit more depth. We will talk to you guys soon. Peace.